Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for September 10th, 2018. I'm very excited today to be joined by Michael Brooks. Uh, if you don't know who Michael Brooks is, he's the host of The Michael Brooks Show. He's the uh, sometimes guest host of uh, The Majority Report with Sam Cedar. Uh, but he's got his own program now where he's doing a fantastic job uh, leading the discussion on leftist political issues across a wide range of, uh, of topics. Uh, if you're one of Michael's Patreon supporters, and you should be, uh, then you know that he does uh, a huge amount of content apart from just the show. He does uh, uh, theory episodes where he uh, dives into leftist political theory. He does episodes that are called Illicit History, where he uh, looks at, uh, you know, again, takes a particular topic and does kind of a deeper look at the uh, the history of that topic uh and he also does post-game call-ins for his uh, for his show every day uh when uh, you, you can uh, they spend a lot of time actually after after they do their live show uh which is on youtube and uh, available on patreon uh, they spend a lot of time after that uh, taking calls from people and uh, having a good time, and it's it's really a great show. And if you haven't checked it out, I, you, seriously, you got to do it. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because he's had me on a few times, um, <laughs> but that is that is part of the appeal, obviously. Uh, I'm gonna flip the tables on Michael uh, today because if you do know the Michael Brooks show, if you do know anything about Michael, then you know one of the issues that he really is uh, very passionate about and knows quite a bit about is uh, the Brazilian uh, is Brazilian politics uh, and Brazilian politics. <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten wind of it, but it's a little freaky right now. Uh, things are a little up in the air. There's a lot of craziness happening, uh, and so I thought uh, I'd bring Michael on and we talk about that and get his. His take on it. Uh, I'm going to let him do a lot of the talking, mostly because I'm, uh, if in case you can't tell, I'm coming down with something, I think. I've got a little, like, stuffy nose thing going on. Uh, so nobody wants to listen to that. I'm going to try to let Michael talk as much as possible. Uh, and also, I, I'm going to warn you guys here as I'm recording this intro just before bringing him on. Uh, if you hear noises, more noise than usual in the background, I know we don't have a professionally set up uh, studio here, so you, you guys get to hear a lot of noises from uh, the rest of the house, but uh, things are a little busy here this morning, uh, busier than usual, so I apologize in advance for that, but it really uh, couldn't be helped. Uh, so with that out of the way, so you know if there's any unexplained noises, you know why, uh, I'm going to uh, bring Michael on uh, on the phone, uh, and we'll get this interview started. Okay, uh, I am being joined, as I said, by Michael Brooks. Michael, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Derek. It's pleasure great to talk to you. It's great to have you on, and uh, I know I, I assume most of the people who listen to this show already uh, listen to yours. But if they don't, uh, I'm going to try and get them to. Yeah. Come <laughs> on, guys. Time. Yeah, seriously, shape up, man. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I promised everybody that I would uh, be open ended with my questions and let you talk because. Uh, I'm a little flemmier than usual this morning, and nobody really needs to hear that. Uh, so I don't notice it, man. You, you, <laughs> as ever, you sound like the white Barry White to me. 
Yeah, I'm trying to keep it smooth. Uh, but no, I wanted to have you on to talk about Brazil because I know this is something that you uh, cover a lot on your show and, and know quite a bit about, and uh, things are a little crazy there, uh, especially the last yep. few days. Uh, and so I was hoping we could do kind of a you know deep cut going back uh, a few years uh, to run through what's happened in Brazilian politics how things got to where they are now, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of give people a, a sort of overview of, uh, uh, of the situation. Absolutely. So I think the place to start, uh, before we get into the most recent literally violent chaos, uh, is with Lula. Uh, Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva... Uh, is the former president of Brazil. He was president from 2003 to 2011. Uh, he was going to run again. Uh, the Brazilian system uh, limits presidents to two consecutive terms, but then you're allowed to run again. Uh, he was going to run again this year. The election is next month, uh, and he was has been consistently in all the polling uh, the front runner by far. Uh, almost close enough, like within shouting distance of that 50% mark that would uh, uh, allow him to, would have allowed him to win the election in the first round and avoid a runoff. Uh, I want to talk about why he's so popular, and I think to do that, obviously, we need to go back to his first stint or his his previous stint as president uh, from 2003 to 2011. He gets a lot of credit uh, for his management of the Brazilian economy and uh, talk about you know, t- talk about what Lula did uh, while he was president and what was so effective about it and and why he's so popular now. I mean, Lula da Silva is the most successful politician in modern politics, and I mean, I it's not hyperbolic. Uh, he brought thirty million people out of poverty. Uh, that's first and foremost, and obviously we know that those, you know, when people make claims like that, you obviously need to scrutinize the metrics they're using, uh, and, you know, we don't want to just be sort of Steve Pinkers, you know, but uh, in terms of, you know, he, but the point being is that he wasn't talking about, you know, people ate a bit more rice, or there was another dollar here and there. I mean, he literally got basically people from grinding poverty into, say, like the lower middle class, uh, you know, and access to consumer goods, apartment upgrades, uh, Bolsa Familia, which, uh, for all of my, I have a lot of skepticism about UBI, but in the context of the era he was governing in, I think this is another important thing to keep in mind, right? Like, yes, there was a kind of leftward kink tide across Latin America, but still, Obviously, you know, the sort of global macroeconomic arrangements and, and questions about how you arrange the economy and, you know, those things were not in play the way they are now when he was elected in 2002, to say the least. Uh, so Bolsa Familia was essentially a cash transfer program to uh, poor families in Brazil, and the only obligations were getting kids medical checkups and medical care and putting them in school. Uh, and he did, in fact, you know, ride a commodity boom 
which, you know, basically China uh, was in need of a lot of commodities and goods that Brazil has, like, you know, soybeans, uh, you know, uh, other, other sort of commodity resources. Uh, and, you know, he uh, rode that, although I think the kind of wrath that he didn't make efforts to diversify the economy and invest in more uh, are, are actually a bit unfair. And even though he sort of followed uh, global economic rules, particularly in his first term and uh, paid off the IMF and everything, he didn't get more IMF loans after he paid them off, much to the chagrin of the IMF. And he also refused uh, to do serious privatization of, as an example, like the state oil company, um, which I don't know about. And I'm sort of skeptical in some ways of a kind of U.S. role per se um, in the sort of assault on Brazilian democracy. I and mean, I'm sure there, you know, U.S. policymakers were fine with it and didn't lift a finger to avert it uh, when it sort of came to, to Dilma Rousseff, his successor. But uh, that being said, for all of his sort of moderation and how he dealt with foreign capital, um, he did not go in a sort of privatization direction. I think that is significant, obviously significant for the redistributive policies he was able to do. Uh, and, you know, just briefly, you know, before, um, you know, this guy is a really unusually charismatic politician. Uh, he, and I think part of the reason there's such love for him, obviously, amongst the, the sort of, you know, people of Brazil and such absolute sort of pathological hatred amongst the elites is a guy who, you know, didn't go to college, who grew up ultra poor, who emerged as a, a metal workers union leader and actually in the 80s through his organizing helped bring down the military dictatorship. He's not only, you know, a, a good guy and a sort of advocate for the underprivileged as like a real basically a Latin American social democrat, he's also the shrewdest politician in Brazil. And when he was on the world stage, everybody from George Bush to Hugo Chavez to Barack Obama, you know, loved him. Uh, and I think there's no doubt that a lot of this sort of Brazilian elite, um, uh, they might have liked it at the time. He did leave office with an approval rating in the 70s, and he got up as high as 84 percent while he was president. But uh, there's clearly a huge amount of class resentment there towards him from the elites. So you you say Bush liked him, and this is a period where, like, I mean, I was studying 16th century Iran, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know what was going on in Brazil. Um, but how did the how did the Bush administration, in particular, um, you know, view uh, having a, a leftist and avowed kind of, as you say, social democrat uh, running Brazil and pursuing these policies? Um, because, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I agree with you. I don't know that there's a, a, an obvious U.S. hand in what's going on now, but at the same time, the Trump administration is conspicuously not saying anything, uh, about Brazilian politics, even though oh. things have been a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit chaotic. And I think it's a case of, you know, we don't want to 
things are going in a direction that we're okay with and we don't want to, exactly. to monkey around with it. Uh, so right. how did, I mean, how did the Bush administration, you know, Bush liked him. How did his administration uh, view Lula's policies? Uh, I, you know, I think that there was definitely an element uh, where there was, you know, uh, they did get along, right? Uh, you know, Obviously, they, in some ways, there's some sort of similar kind of backslap personalities. Uh, they had some, you know, strong disagreements on, as an example, international enforcement of uh, treaties on global warming. Although they also had, uh, you know, an interesting, I think, especially towards the end, and I don't remember all of the specifics of it, but I know when Bush started to kind of pivot to um, his version of a green agenda, which are like those, uh, which was, you know, uh, basically burning uh, alternative fuels. Um, I, for, I forget what they're called. Burning brush on the ranch. Burning brush. No, but there was a, there was a, there was basically um, type of fuel sources that Brazil was developing that fit into, you know, what Bush's sort of supposedly post-carbon agenda so there was business, uh, you know, opportunities between uh, Brazil and the United States. I think that, and I also have no doubt that the Bush administration was also eyeing Brazil and in that context as the alternative to Hugo Chavez, right? Like, even though, um, by all appearances, Lula and Chavez had a very good relationship and actually did cooperate in, uh, you know, various sort of regional blocks. Uh, and so on, there's no doubt that the Bush administration was thinking, well, you know, we can sort of, we can live with a guy uh, that redistributes, but frankly, you know, the oligarchs are getting richer and richer, Uh, foreign investors are doing well, Um, you know, we can live with that, Uh, right? Right, yeah, there's sort of a, you know, know, the, the... (laughs) <laughs> the alternative model, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that was, um, that was a big part of it. Okay. Uh, and I think that there was also, obviously, a lot of, of interest, particularly in, in farm trade and so on. I mean, you know, Lula and I, I mean, there's a very valid, there's an important left critique of Lula, which is that, while he was president, he had all of these successes, and people's lives, particularly the poor, got a lot better. But by not taking on the media monopolies in Brazil, as an example, which is a major problem, and not dealing with uh, you know the oligarchs, and not and you know and and participating in the Brazilian system, which involves cutting all sorts of deals with you know basically just like rent-seeking corrupt parties. You know, he didn't change the rules of the game. Uh, which is why, you know, uh, Brazil's in the catastrophe it's in right now and why he's in jail. Uh, and I think that that's, I mean, it's a valid critique because it's, you know, correct, right? That has been how it's played out. It's a little bit armchair, I think, because I do, I, I think that by the time he gets elected the presidency, I think on his third or fourth attempt in 2002, it makes a lot of sense given the conditions of the world at that time, and, and even the 1988 Brazilian Constitution, to follow the path he did. Um, and, and it worked. 
for a long time. Uh, also, oh, and uh, right, it, ethanol. Big, I'm looking this up now, right? That was what I was looking for. A lot of interest in uh, trade and biofuels partnership between the U.S. and Brazil. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, Lula is president for eight years. He he does, uh, you know, um, amazing things, really, uh, to uh, lift people out of poverty, and he, he pursues uh, an agenda that makes a lot of sense. He's replaced then by uh, Dilma Rousseff uh, in 2011, and she was his energy minister at one point and his chief of staff uh-huh. uh, and sort of his hand-picked successor. Uh, she did not have as fun a time as president of Brazil uh, as he did. Uh, so uh, talk about her and what happened uh, to her uh, and this is where we're going to start to get into things like Operation Car Wash and the Odebrecht corruption scandal and things that are uh, not just kind of still gripping Brazilian politics, uh, but have spread, kind of metastasized all around Latin America and are, uh, you know, affecting, like, taking down politicians in other countries and causing scandals in other countries. So let's get, I mean, yeah, talk, if you can talk about... Uh, well, yeah, the next yeah. Stage so here. she was um, basically, yeah, she was his chief of staff. She was energy minister. She actually has a really interesting background herself. Um, she doesn't have the same sort of incredible, you know, from absolute poverty, uh, and then you know, and then sort of rise to the presidency. But she was a guerrilla fighter who actually, you know, fought the military dictatorship and was tortured by the military dictatorship. If I recall correctly, I don't. Yeah, I believe she was tortured. Uh, she um, actually, you know, in the beginning continues a lot of Lula's policies. Uh, she gets elected in 2010. And in, you know, in the latter part, like 2013, the international system starts kind of hitting, right? Like the the commodity prices are going down, sort of. The, 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 the tailwinds that were benefiting Brazil, uh, you know, start to cool down, right? So there is like a kind of objective condition to it. And then there's this sort of very complicated process that a guy like Ben Fogel, uh, who's an academic, covers well. Uh, I've had him on my show. Uh, and, and where in 2013, there's these, Various types of um, protests, in, uh, particularly in uh, Sao Paulo, as an example, about uh, bus fares and public transport, there's some pushback against um, some moves that basically Dilma is making towards um, austerity, basically. Uh, and, you know, as always, there's the debate, particularly when you have a center-left leader of, you know, how much of this is just literally necessary versus, um, you know, uh, uh, basically a, 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 a incorrect political calculations, you know, to sort of ease the fears of maybe an investor class and, you know, right-wing po- politicians she's in conjunction with. That's the other thing that people need to re- remember this whole time. The whole, you know, period, the Workers' Party is needing to cut deals with other Brazilian political parties. And there's tons of Brazilian political parties, and most of them are not even 
you know, they're not like Democrats or Republicans. They're, they're, you know, which is not the same. Obviously, there's a huge amount of corruption in U.S. politics. But I mean, literally, like, maybe Derek and I just have a political party. And we, you know, <laughs> we have some type of mini distribution network set up somewhere and we get elected to Congress. And then, you know, we're freewheeling votes for anybody in exchange for personal goodies, right? That oh, yeah, that system. sounds good. All right. So it requires a lot of deal cutting. Uh, and so there are these protests about austerity, and then they sort of turn, they kind of morph into these sort of broader corruption protests. And somehow this corruption protest become very right-wing, right? So it sort of goes from protests that you could say are to the left of the Workers' Party government, and a, and a very, you know, and, and important, because a lot of, because definitely, you know, Workers' Party were kind of demobilized, right? That, that was a failing of the Lula and Dilma governments, right? Which, like, part of the origins of the party coming out of the 1980s are a mass movement party that synthesizes the Catholic left, labor, Trotskyites, you know, middle-class social Democrats, um, and, and there's, you know, there's wildcat strikes. I mean, this, the kind of core power does come out of labor, and that's, and also in addition to, you know, Lula's political talents, that's why Lula's so important. But there is a, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an electoral party with a mass movement base, and that's not encouraged while they're in power. So, you know, these protests are kind of coming from the left. As they, when it's about austerity, and then and then this sort of anti-corruption discourse kind of morphed uh, into mass protesting in 2013, 2014 uh, against corruption, and then you can already start to see, like, and I remember talking to people from Brazil at the time, saying like, yeah, like all of a sudden there are these weird, uh, you know. Uh, there's weird libertarian websites. There's all sorts of bizarre right-wing propaganda in the middle classes, um, as it is in the United States. I mean, first of all, there's there's people would have used the word like. I mean, it's a very explosive term, but I think it's you know specialists talk about social apartheid in Brazil. So there's already like the you know hidden and held in resentments about Lula, right? And then there's, uh, you know, the fact that the Workers' Party represents, obviously, a much more diverse base of Brazilians, like black Brazilians, women, you know, women, and so on. Um, so, and, and at this point, the Brazilian media is just, you know, it's totally um, in the tank for these anti-corruption protests that are really sort of anti-Dilma protests. And... Uh, you know, by a lot of accounts, heading into 2014, the right thinks they're going to win. Um, and they don't. Dilma actually, no, no doubt, you know, with her own inclinations and the advice of Lula, starts to sort of pivot back and basically run again on, you know, essentially like, look, the bottom line is whatever our feelings are, we're the party that's massively cut poverty we're the party not of the elite, you know, we're the party that's going to keep, you know, important things going, and she wins. And then, then that sort of 
interest, you know, that that, that base, the 2014, 2015, particularly, excuse me, more so 2015, sort of anti-corruption politics, quote-unquote, morphed into this sort of drive for her impeachment. Uh, and there's then the... Uh, Car wash operation, car wash, Lava Jato investigation starts as well, and it starts basically with, you know, they they get some sort of local or, or relatively small level money launderer, and then from there they just start to basically, um, you know, dig deeper, and there is an unbelievable amount of corruption, basically, I guess, coming out of a yeah the. Brazilian state oil company, uh, the you know, and and it and it and, the, and it, you know, it it's turning up evidence on people across the board um, in, uh, in in Brazilian politics, right? I mean, there's estimates that the amount of money involved in this could be anywhere from you know, I mean, thirty billion or uh, which in. Um, Brazilian uh, uh, money versus nine billion in U.S. money, right? So it's a lot of money. It implicates a lot of people. There's a way in which, and it's you know, it's very convoluted, but the sort of bottom line political fallout of it, and there was some right leaning, uh, you know, politicians that have been targeted and gone to jail, but it's leveraged by the right as an attack on the workers party and even in popular media there's a, like there was this um netflix series which was just trash um both in terms of it's just not very good unfortunately and it had and um the politics of it are are very it sort of falsely represents lula and the workers party it's called the mechanism as basically like a mafia cartel the sort of core bosses of this corruption, uh, whereas, you know, they say it really is more likely to be that, or, you know, what it was demonstrated was that, look, that, yeah, Autobrecht and politicians across the spectrum have engaged in a variety of corrupt practices. Um, Dilma is impeached and removed from office in 2016, and what is, I think, fair to say is a I would call a soft coup. She's actually not impeached about anything having to do with the car wash investigation. They actually never, never pinned any actual corruption charge on Dilma. Dilma was literally impeached for accounting tricks, um, like basically, you know, moving money around, not even money itself, but basically sort of plugging holes in departments' budgets, if this makes sense. So, like, if this one's in the red, let's say that there's another couple hundred, you know, thousand or something that went here versus there to make things look better on paper. I mean, that would be sort of analogous to Republicans getting into power and impeaching Obama over um, flimsy budget projections, right? Mm -hmm. Like, essentially, a political practice that... You know, I don't know. Whatever, maybe, maybe it's not a good thing to do. Who knows? I, I don't. You know, that's a it's a very processed thing that, frankly, doesn't doesn't have that much import. But it's certainly something that is practiced by any number of leaders and 
executives in the private and public sector. And of course, you know, you're doing this and the people going after her, including her then coalition partner, uh, her vice president, Michelle Temer, who's sort of, you know, and his PM uh, DB party who have the sort of final knife in the back. I mean, these guys are extraordinarily corrupt, right? Like right. tape recordings of Temer talking about bribing witnesses. Uh, there's, you know, just this sort of orgy of corruption in Brazilian politics. And Dilma is actually removed from office for an accounting trick. And then, uh, you know, we, I mean, literally. And then we have Michelle uh, Temer gets into power in 2016, and we do see, and this is why I, I agree, I think, you know, whether it's Bush, Obama, or Trump, um, regardless of whether or not there was U.S. interference, and different people, you know, there are disagreements about this, and there's no doubt that the United States Justice Department has actively cooperated with Car Wash and supports it. And, you know, you could also, it's a, it's a different case, obviously, but there was also that, that uh, you know, federal court ruling in New York that froze Argentinian assets on behalf of a vulture capitalist, you know, vulture investor. <laughs> right, like, right, I remember that. Right, like, yeah. there is this stuff going on, and it's very real. <clears throat> but I think that even if we didn't, you know, even if there wasn't support per se, it's not as if a U.S. administration isn't going to be happy to default to, okay, now that we go from social Democrats, however responsible, quote-unquote, they might be, Michelle Temer wants to privatize the country. Right. Uh, Brazil's become right to work. He's slashing and gutting all of the great achievements of Lula and the Workers' Party. Um, there's, you know, increased inequality. Labor is getting attacked. Um, mass austerity, um, which, you know, great. Sounds like a good investor environment. So I have no doubt that U.S. policymakers are, you know, very happy with the soft coup and the just, you know, utter abuse of the Temer government. Now, the only other things to add is, I mean, Michelle Temer, and you know, he can't even run for president himself. He's so profoundly unpopular, and there's such sort of broad disgust. And, you know, during this time, Judge Sergio Moro, who, and I, I don't, entirely understand how this process works, but maybe we'll, we'll get to what happened with Lula in a second. But the, you know, Lula, back even in 2016, and I, and I, 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 I think it's genuinely up in the air whether he actually wanted to run for president again, right? I think that, you know, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, there wasn't a good bench of successors that he helped cultivate, and, you know, that's a mistake. Um, but I don't know that Lula was like, all right, Dilma for two, then I'm back. Right. right? I don't, I wouldn't assume that. And I think what, what I do think is there was this 2016 Al Jazeera interview where he went, before they had removed Dilma and, and Lula was basically back on the front lines kind of trying to do strategy for her. And I, and I think, in fact, if Lula was president, I think he would have, not been impeached. And I think that some of the same, you know, incredible political skill sets he has would have been used both to, to much more quickly pivot to getting people resources and being in a Keynesian mode. And I think he also would have, I'm sure, cut some, you know, I mean, the funny, some shady deals. The funny thing about Lula is he really is what Trump is always like in his, you know, milk brain is always yakking about. 
Lula actually does make deals and is like an incredible deal maker. That's kind of like one of the sort of ironies of, of this uh, of this situation. But in 2016, this Al Jazeera interview, he was like, "Look, if you come after, and this is before they, you know, they did right when they removed Dilma and this just travesty, Pamir government came into power." But he's like, "They have to know." That if they go after these social achievements that we, you know, that we've achieved, I'm running again, and you know, so it's kind of a threat. Sorry, so it's kind of a threat. Like, uh, so it's kind of a threat yeah. because they have to know, and he knows, and everybody knows. Like, he's gonna win, right? right. Like, he's he's <laughs> the most successful president Brazil has had. I think. I mean, as Perry Anderson, the historian, said, you know, he's probably he's the most successful politician in modern politics. I think. That's not remotely hyperbole. I think that's, you know, of course there are flaws and mistakes and critiques, but it still seems to me that that certainly stands up. And, uh, you know, he would win. So then there's this whole other parallel process um, to use the judiciary to imprison Lula so he can't run, uh, which was just incredibly disturbing. So bef- before we get there, I want to I want to go back and ask you a couple of questions uh, about Rousseff and Michel Temer. Um, I, my I remember, and you know, again, it wasn't I wasn't like uh, you know focusing or following Brazilian politics particularly at the time, but I and I was kind of uh, reading articles as I would see them, and uh, the, at the time when Rousseff was was impeached. Uh, it almost seemed like she was impeached by popular acclaim. Like, there were these stories about these massive protests across Brazil, uh, you know, about her and about corruption. Uh, the austerity angle still... I mean, there were still people, it seemed like, to me at least, uh, there were still people out there protesting about austerity. And in particular, they were protesting about uh, the Brazilian government's uh, curious, let's say, decision uh, to invest billions of dollars in hosting the Olympics while people were struggling right. to eat and struggling for for jobs, um, and and I think so. I, I think these two strains have have continued to the present, where you have uh, you know the the left anxiety and and outrage over austerity, and then you have this anti corruption thing that's been co-opted i guess by the right and is still being co-opted by the right i mean temer uh i'm I mean, you know he's he's as you say sort of almost cartoonishly corrupt uh, but now there's an even further right candidate who has seized the the anti-corruption message and is running with it so the first thing i wanted to ask you about was the olympics angle uh the and and then the second thing i wanted to ask you was to if you could try to um illustrate for people i guess the depth of Temer's corruption because it really is like uh it, it seems like something that you would see on a, a badly written television series or something <laughs> yeah i mean i i think the first part i don't you know the, the the truth is i don't know if um if if the olympics were unpopular across the board in brazil right I still think there was there might have been a large sense of sort of national pride and happiness about the Olympics, um, 
but yes, there were massive protests against them. And we, I mean, it's pretty well established that both the Olympics and the World Cup are bad for the places that they go, um, you know, particularly in the peripheries, right? So, yeah, I mean, there, there's a whole, there's a, a bunch of articles uh, that people wrote last year. I think ESPN did a big story on on this last year about the the like their Olympic Park, which cost billions of dollars to build, is just like empty now. I mean, there's nothing yeah. there. It's it's a uh, it's, it looks like a hollowed out ghost town, basically. Oh yeah, and I mean yeah. So I think that there yeah. I mean, there's no question that um, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was not. It was it was bad, right? Like I think there was in 2013, 2014. There's no, and still, right? There's still, although although you know, it's it sort of converged now, um, where people that attack the Workers Party from the left are, you know, supportive of Lula and you know, interested in this process obviously because um you know they they see the sort of larger you know stakes in a way uh but yeah i mean i don't know specifically in terms of kind of mass mobilization what the olympics meant uh for uh, you know the resistance to rusev but i mean clearly i mean i think the kind of through line is there's a demobilization of the left um, in ter- from even in the Lula period, right? Like the, the, the party becomes much more of a sort of, you know, professionalized, quote-unquote, you know, PR consultants, pollsters, strategists. Uh, and and not one that's sort of focused on you know having like cadres in the streets to sort of you know have like inside outside pressure. And I think under Lula, you know, it's I mean, there's always a left critique of his you know his environmental policies, financial policies, and so on. But obviously, there's a massive amount of success, and he's usually popular. And I think particularly in the period before 2014 election, both the Olympics and the the bus fare issues in uh, San Paulo really zeroed in on that split between Rousseff and, and, and the Workers' Party and the left. And it might be, although I think in 2016 people were uh, already sort of, you know, very wary. <laughs> I mean, it's not like people couldn't see where the attack was coming from. But I think there's no doubt that, you know, she had done and they had done enough to alienate their base their, and their natural constituencies that I'm sure that it wasn't, I mean, even as like an outside observer, right, and was nowhere near the same stakes. But I remember when, when Rousseff was going through this process, it was like, well, that seems really ridiculous and that shouldn't be happening. But... You know, is this really somebody to struggle over? You know, because we're yeah, because right. we're mainly focusing on things like the Olympics, wasting all this money. You know, the ongoing problems of you know police violence, as an example. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I I, I I don't know quantitatively 
how big um, those those sort of factors are, but I do think that it's undoubtedly, uh, I mean, part of it because it's like you know that that's sort of what that's what modern center left parties seem to do all the time, right? Just alienate their base, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, really. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with that. Seems to be kind of a pattern. <laughs> uh, uh, Michelle Temer, I, I honestly can't even keep track of the amount of, like, I mean, I think he really is, he's, you know, he's a gangster. Um, there's a new, a uh, police have just opened up another investigation of him within the last couple of days. Uh, now, it's funny because, like, there's police investigations against, like, multiple Brazilian <laughs> politicians so it's not necessarily like you know it's just kind of like he denies it and sort of keeps it moving um although i guess theoretically he could get suspended from the presidency um my guess is i want to hold on to some office when he's not president so because i believe sitting members of, of parliament don't get uh criminally charged um but I mean, this guy, I mean, the new charges involve a sort of network uh, of corruption with an architecture and engineering firm. Uh, he's, as I said, he's been on tape talking about bribing people himself personally. Uh, he's already evaded multiple bribery charges in at least two other cases. Um, and, uh, yeah, there are recordings uh, of him um, on almost all of these. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all like, I mean, as I, I mean, say, it's like, it will require its own sort of, he's, he's right. one of these people that like, unfortunately, people like me are just like, yeah, he's super corrupt because it's like, how do you weed through every single corruption allegation <laughs> around him there? Yeah. Has been, like, pretty, literally, if you research the guy, it's like, you know, stab Rusev in the back is corrupt. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's been charged with obstruction of justice, being part of a criminal right. conspiracy. And, and I mean, he's uh, almost know, been impeached. He was almost impeached uh, twice, I think, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think he's almost been impeached twice as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I remember reading, uh, I don't know if it was the, I think it was the second time when they were sort of like, okay, they have to do it now. Like, they didn't do it the first time, but they have to do it now. Like, he's he's been protected by uh, allies in parliament or you know in the brazilian kind of brazilian congress basically because uh his approval ratings are so low that he could be kind of the sacrificial lamb for the austerity agenda right i mean like he can't get I any think more that's popular really good. i mean he's in the single digits everybody hates him he can't get any more unpopular so why not just let him kind of absorb all the hate i think that's exactly it I think that that's, and I also think that, you know, again, the other thing that's sort of structural is, you know, like this latest case involves taking a bribe and, you know, or, or one of the, one of the times that the, that the house, you know, sort of let him get away with it basically was it involved an investigation with him basically doling out millions of dollars into important congressional districts. And, that's the type of thing where it's like, okay, first of all, that's the type of investigation that's going to implicate pretty much every single politician in Brazil. <laughs> and it's the type of thing where it's like, 
and I'm not saying this to justify anything, but th- to me it's like it's very important to understand. Like, I don't think you, you could not wield power in Brazil without some level of involvement in corruption. Like, I don't think it's possible, right? And, and you know, and Temer is doing it to advance the interests of oligarchs and investor class and almost certainly to massively enrich himself. Um, whereas, you know, in the Workers' Party case, you could still very much make the case that they were, you know, doing it as part of a, you know, an actual effort to get in power so they could do things like take 30 million people out of poverty or like right. make hunger not an issue in Brazil again, which now it is under Temer, but was not under Lula and Dilma. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and also this is a place too where, you know, there's also like, a very slow process. Like there's people who've been, you know, still haven't gotten a trial date for corruption charges going back to the nineties. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, but I think you're right. I think it's just like everybody loathes Michelle Temer. And frankly, even if you kind of like, one of the things that's helpful about Brazilian politics is that people very much look their part. You know, Lula, <laughs> solid, you know, bearded, like, he just looks like a good dude, you know, like, definitely, actually, a friend of mine showed me a picture from uh, when he was president that some, like, you know, paparazzi took of just Lula, like, in shorts, shirt, flip-flops with some buddies carrying a cooler of beer on his head to go to the beach. <laughs> like, he's nice. a good dude, right? Yeah. And and Dilma, you know, she looks like, you know, she, she is, and obviously, as with all women politicians, there was a lot of, you know, that was compounded by misogyny, you know, and she has plenty of her own failings, but she, I mean, and Michelle Temer looks like a guy who would get cast in like a directed DVD, like Gotti movie. (laughs) (laughs) Like he is sleazy motherfucker. He's the villain from McBain from the McBain movies. Yeah. I mean, he just, and I think you're totally right. I think that like, I mean, we, he's the type of guy, he's almost like, I mean, I somehow actually De La Sada, or Goni, the guy in Bolivia, actually managed to win some elections with help of fucking, you know, scumbag Democratic consultants. But, um, you know, you, you look at it, I don't know how familiar people are with him, but he's actually um, the predecessor of Evo Morales and ended up needing to flee Bolivia because he basically ordered the killing of protesters. And I think he's in Miami, you know, not facing criminal charges. But... This guy, like, was so, I mean, I, I can't speak to, you know, Temer's speaking abilities, but, like, this guy was just a weirdo. I mean, he spoke Spanish with, like, an American accent, because I think he'd spent a lot of time in the United States. He had pretty much no charisma and was just sort of there to be a rich guy and privatize industries. And, uh, you know, and, and worst-case scenario, if you're totally rejected by and hated by your people and even criminally wanted as he was in, in Bolivia, you can just, you know, go hang out in Miami. So I think Michelle Temer, it's like, yeah, he'll be rich in a corrupt political class in Brazil. And the absolute worst-case scenario, if things all of a sudden go really well for Brazil, I'm sure he could flee the United States or, you know, whatever. Right. So, uh, all right, now I, I want to take it to the present day and talk about this year's presidential election. Uh, Lula had you know, 
been running as far as everybody was concerned. Uh, he's led in all the polls. As I said, he, he's led, uh, you know, within shouting distance of, of uh, winning in the first round. Uh, and yet now he's uh, in prison over a corruption charge. Uh, and I know this is something you've, you've called a judicial coup. Uh, so I want you to talk about that and talk about uh, the guy who is the apparent frontrunner with Lula out of the race, this very far-right uh, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, and, uh, you know, his, he was just stabbed on Thursday at a campaign rally. So, uh, you know, he's kind of very much in the news at this point. Uh, let's, let's start with Lula and, and the, the case against him and how that's affected the race. And then we can talk about, uh, Bolsonaro after that. Yeah. I mean, look, I think I, I should say, like, I well, my real speculative interpretation is that is more that that the Workers Party under Lula's leadership, as I've said before, has had to cut, um, you know, various kinds of deals to exercise power in Brazil, um, and and some of those deals might be you know technically illegal or unsavory or whatever. So I think that. And it's not to say there's certainly some, I'm sure that there's members of Workers' Party that have enriched themselves, but I think that most of the issues you find around Workers' Party corruption have to do with funding a party and making deals to stay in power. And, you know, I think ultimately, I mean, I agree with, uh, there's a piece coming out in Catalyst by Ben Fogel, who I had on my show recently, who's an academic specializing in this stuff, that... In the longer term, I mean, the left in Brazil needs an anti-corruption strategy also for, you know, very practical reasons, because it's like, and this is more me here, but we could see, like, Lula created all of these win-wins, where it's like you, you, you know, you seriously reduce poverty, you create all these incredible social advances, you make Brazil a better place for people, and the rich are getting richer, and the old, you know, there's no accountability for the oligarchs, There's, you know, right? So that model obviously hasn't worked because they'll still go after you. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not trying to, you know, say that Lula is a saint or there hasn't been plenty, plenty of problems in the Workers' Party. That said, I have to say I'm kind of shocked, given, frankly, like how up the car wash investigation and how many literally billions of dollars are involved and how it's become, as you said, it's like a regional investigation. They've put Lula in jail and look, there's other investigations going on. There actually is one, I think, related to the Olympics. Okay. So, you know, who knows? But Lula is in jail for accepting a beachside condo essentially from uh, a, an executive and engineering firm and I'm just going to quote <clears throat> briefly from it there's a piece in the intercept on this because I just want to really you know distill <laughs> like the, just just the, the fishiness around this the indictment against Lula's rife with problems the apartment title was never transferred to Lula's associate he and his wife never used the property 
prosecutor could never identify an explicit quid pro quo or benefit related to Petrobras. No official or internal document linking Lula to the department was produced, and the case almost rests entirely on the testimony of the executive who gained a sentencing leniency for his cooperation. Uh, you know, that's the case. Now, I think there's photos of Lula and his wife visiting the apartment. Um, but they literally have sort of imprisoned him on the basis of testimony and sort of like unknown wrongdoing. Like we know that you did something. We have enough to say that there's something sketchy here. So we're putting you in jail for it. We can't exactly say what it is. And that is the case that's gotten him 12 years. And that is the case where, I mean, a couple of months ago, one judge actually did say he needed to be released on a habeas corpus uh, uh, petition. And then the judge, the prosecutor that put him in jail, literally just refused to cooperate with the order, which was illegal uh, until a higher court intervened and, and kept Lula in jail. He's lost every single appeal. And, you know, as the process dragged out in the summer, I mean, these things are symbolic, but it got more and more like, you know, the United Nations Human Rights Commission said, hey, he's got to run. Uh, you know, Jorge Castaneda, who's the former Mexican foreign minister under Vicente Fox, so certainly not, you know, not a man of the right, but not a man of the left, mm. um, wrote a column in the New York Times saying that, uh, you know, basically like, look, Lula's got to run here uh, if if Brazil wants to, you know, keep a, uh, you know, uh, a democratic trajectory, essentially. Um, and so, and, and also there's, you know, there's been pushes from actually a lot of, you know, they're out of power, but pretty much every mainline European social democratic centrist politician, you know, Francois Hollande, uh, Jose Zapatero, Martin Schulz, bunch of members of the Labor Party, and there was also a letter uh, from the United States which was signed by, you know, good people here like Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna and Barbara Lee um, and Frank Pallone and a bunch of others. And obviously, and there's also been a massive amount of international, you know, from the United States to South Africa, labor union solidarity. Um, and they just refuse to let him run and during the, you know, and let him out of jail, let him communicate with the press. I mean, this is a country where drug cartel heads have had interviews in their prison cell. The media is completely unable to reach Lula in jail. So, you know, when I say it's a judicial coup, which I have no doubt it is, it doesn't mean that, like, everything is completely exculpatory of Lula and the Workers' Party. It means that look at what this process has been and look at how clearly, I mean, it's just objectively you know, a drive to silence him and keep him out of the presidential election. Uh, you know, and, and, and I just don't see how that's debatable. You know, even if you believe the worst about Lula, which I don't, obviously, I'm, I do like and support Lula, but even if you did, how you could not take these things in their own merits and see that it's a pretty odd, you know, right. and quite obviously preset game in terms of barring him from running. Uh, I, I just don't see how you'd make that case. 
So the, the as I said, the the front runner, um, although the n n he hasn't polled nearly as well as Lula, uh, but the front runner and the polling that's been done without Lula in the race, kind of assuming that that he wouldn't be allowed to run because of his legal troubles, uh, has been Jair Bolsonaro, who is a far right, I think, former officer in the Brazilian army. Um, and, uh, it seems again, to my sort of, uh, outsider view of this, uh, that he's being fueled by two things. One is he's picked up the banner of this anti-corruption movement, uh, that, you know, Temer kind of cynically used to, to, uh, get himself into power. But then of course, you know, just, uh, dropped immediately, uh, and he's also, I think, being fueled by the the general trend toward right wing xenophobic uh, nationalist populism around the world, uh, and in in Brazil's case, that's even you know that's being kind of kicked into another gear because of the refugee situation in Venezuela and the the influx of uh, people along the northern border. Uh, I, I wanted you to you know talk a little bit about him. Um, I, I I don't know how much we can say about the attack against him on Thursday, other than uh, it seems to have been very serious, and he was very badly wounded. He seems to be okay now. He's in stable condition, uh, but it doesn't seem to have been politically motivated. They they caught the guy and he, he the attacker, and he seems to be uh, generally unwell, mentally speaking. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but talk about uh, Bolsonaro and his politics and uh, what he might mean for Brazil. And I, I guess also, you know, your sense of how likely he is to win the election at this point, because the, the polling has put him around, you know, I mean, there's a lot of candidates, so you can be a front runner at like 20, 22%, which is where he's kind of hovered. And then there are questions about whether somebody as far right kind of on the fringe as he is could win a runoff when it's one-on-one -on -one against presumably a more mainstream politician. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. And I, and it should be said, I mean, that he actually just released the picture I'm just seeing now of him, he's in his hospital room, uh, and, you know, it looks pretty serious, uh, but he's making a uh, machine gun gesture um, in his recovery room, so... <laughs> well, then. That gives you, yeah, he, or it's, it's, excuse me, it's his trademark gun gesture. Um, he's, uh, yeah, I mean, look, before I get into all this other stuff, I mean, yeah, this guy's a sociopath. Uh, he's a far-right... Um, guy, uh, to say the least. He's, I believe it has, it's been reported in several sources that Bannon is advising him or connected to his campaign. Uh, he's, you know, all the things I mean, you'd expect. I mean, obviously he's a vocal opponent of marriage equality and, you know, uh, women's rights in any category. Um, he also, you know, he, but he also has, you know, Trump, like people from Haiti, Africa, Middle East are the scum of humanity. He's repeatedly defended the Brazilian military dictatorship, right, which ran the country from the um, from the uh, 60s to the mid-80s. Uh, he's, you know, he's made comments like to 
one woman journalist, like you're not good enough looking to rape, or excuse me, I think it was actually a fellow member of the Senate. He, you know, he is a hard right, um, you know, just, I mean, he's, he's advocated sterilizing the poor. I mean, I, he is everything people say about him, right? <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a really, uh, he's a, he's a, He's definitely a uniquely despicable, disgusting, and dangerous political figure. And he's also regularly talks about, you know, in a kind of Duterte mold that, you know, in a place where, as an example, Mariela Franco, who was this very courageous, important, young uh, socialist city councilwoman in San Paulo, I believe, who was, you know, assassinated, like gunned down in her car. Uh, by a group that was almost certainly a paramilitary or a gang or police themselves, right? If not a paramilitary or a gang affiliated with police factions. This is a place where, you know, police go and kill people regularly in favelas. He's talking about, you know, kind of like, similarly in the Trump mold, right? Like, we already have massive police violence problem in the United States. Well, let's increase it. Um, You know, he's, uh, he's, uh, you know, yes. I mean, he is a hard right, uh, you know, despicable guy. Everything people say about him is true. Obviously, yeah, it seems like that's the global pattern, right? That you have um, various forms of a corrupt, ineffective, elite, and incestuous center. And then you have these hard right, you know, figures who are actually, in fact, elite themselves. I mean, he has a military background. He's well off. You know, it's not, it's, it's the typical bullshit, right? Like the Steve Bannon, it doesn't matter if Trump was a trust fund baby, lives in a, you know, $40 million apartment. It's, you know, he says like, uh, you know, he calls Mexican rapists on TV and that triggers the libs. So how could he be elite, right? Like that kind of, you know, bullshit, uh, bigoted cultural signifying of the new global right. Uh, and, and his vice president, uh, specifically has tried to make it uh, that the guy who stabbed him was a member of the Workers' Party. Uh, they tried to make hay of it. And, you know, Brazilian politics is such that people on the right are going to lie and distort, uh, you know, about this incident because, by all accounts, this is just a very mentally disturbed person. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, I, I know people on the left who think that this is purely staged, right? This is like a Reichstag fire. Um I and I do know that you know his poll numbers have gone up in sympathy uh, over the last uh, you know forty eight hours. I don't think he'll actually win. Uh, I think his poll numbers seem to have a pretty tight ceiling, and you know what Brazil has that other countries don't. I mean, obviously it had in Lula, ironically, like. Uh, you know, it actually had all of these, all of these ranting and raving centrist liberals who are always talking about, oh, we need a moderate who could defeat, you know, these hard right uh, leaders. What's funny to me is that by any actual global rational standard, like Lula is that moderate right. who could be a fascist, right. right? Like, unless you already have such incredibly far right assumptions that you see Lula as some type of <laughs> radical and not just a successful, you know, social Democrat with a working class background, uh, you would understand that. And that is actually to the credit of even some 
very mediocre European politicians, they actually get that. Um, I think, but so far, all of Bolsonaro's opponents, uh, the other several candidates, actually beat him in the second round. And I think, except for um, Lula's sort of stand-in, this guy Fernando Haddadji, who is going to end up being the Workers' Party candidate, he ties with Bolsonaro. But I actually think that with Lula's support and that momentum, I think that he will probably win the election. I mean, don't forget, Workers' Party's won four elections in a row. Right. Like, any time they actually go to the ballot, Workers' Party wins. The thing that's very disturbing now, and I don't know, I don't know enough how to read into this, is that members of the armed forces occasionally make these sort of odd statements in public about how concerned they are about what this election is doing to Brazil's country. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, okay. in a way, <laughs> it would find that. I mean, Bolsonaro is incredibly disturbing, you know, and I think it's totally possible if you nominate a candidate like this guy, uh, Alckman, who's, you know, just like the classic neoliberal, corrupt, whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, he seems like, he seems like the stand-in for for Temer, basically. Yeah, if you, if uh, I mean, you I don't know how personally corrupt Temer, he is. But, yeah. yeah. Maybe, or, or maybe, I don't even, yeah, but I think even a guy like, like the, there's actually a sort of modestly center-left candidate, Cyro Gomes, who's even talked in the past about freeing Lula. I think he would win. I think uh, she's very sketchy, very odd. Marina Silva, she's kind of weird hybrid of sort of like evangelical green activist hmm. um, but she but she also has connections with the oligarchs but she's actually also done a great job of calling out Bolsonaro for his inhumanity and his racism and his misogyny she's also a woman of color and I do think Fernando Haddadji would beat him um, and I think I mean that's obviously the scenario you know I think is obviously best for Brazil if the workers party wins uh, but the real rumbling that I see that is disturbing are those kind of indirect comments from the military. And also, I do think there's a little bit of an element of you have all of these representatives of this corrupt Brazilian political class that would essentially continue the austerity and the abuses of Temer. You have the judicial coup against Lula. You have the soft coup against Dilma. And let's focus all of our attention on this far-right asshole Right, <laughs> probably won't be president. And I think that there is some, I mean, it becomes a lot more complicated and dangerous with him getting stabbed. And obviously that 20% that he represents is, you know, a massive danger to the country. And it correlates with things like the assassination of Mariela Franco or the fact that actually a, a caravan Lula was traveling in several months ago before he was imprisoned was shot at on the street. Um, you know, it's a dangerous, potent, fascistic force, but I don't think it's actually going to be an election winner. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you talked about Hadaji, and that was uh, going to be my last question. It seems to me his chances of getting into the runoff uh, hinge on whether or not... He, and he, he, by the way, has also now been charged in a corruption scandal from his time right. when he was mayor of Sao Paulo, which, uh, you know, if you're inclined to think that there's some kind of 
fishy business here to to silence the left and uh, you know i think that uh is certainly <laughs> could certainly be evidence for your theory um <laughs> but right <laughs> um but his i mean his challenge it seems to me is to get the people you talked about who are uh, you you talked about the the disconnect that kind of developed between the workers party especially after Dilma uh, took over and the left as it, you know the workers party sort of drifted in a more professionalized less populist direction um there's a there's a big chunk of voters in the polling who uh, say that if Lula isn't in fact on the ballot which it appears now he will not be that they just won't vote. They won't vote for Hadaji, even though Lula has said, you know, this guy is is, uh, you know, my my handpicked kind of uh, uh, choice. If you you know, if you if you support me, you should support him. Uh, and he was, you know, going to be Lula's running mate if if things had worked out that way. Uh, nevertheless, there's a, a big chunk of his voters who simply say they're not going to vote, and that's those seem to be uh, the ones who kind of fell out of love with the Workers' Party. Uh, the the challenge then that that Hadaji has is to get them back, and Lula could help with that certainly, but there's a question uh, about how much he's going to be allowed to be involved even in this election. As you said, he's been kind of cut off from the media in ways that are unusual uh, for people in prison in Brazil. Uh, and, you know, if they're, if they're going to let him play that kind of role where he can tell his supporters, uh, you know, fall in line behind this guy. Do you, I mean, do you think that, uh, what do you think the chances of putting that, that coalition back together basically uh, are? You seem to be optimistic about it. I mean, it's super speculative. I, it it seems to me that you know. I, I mean, look, and I'm not basing this. I I agree with you. I think the polling has already gotten better, just even in the last several weeks since Hadaji has been around. And I actually wonder if this, I mean, just hilariously in time, bribery probe. Like, I wonder if that actually helps him because it just looks. So ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, it gets, you know, people's yeah. eyes roll back. <laughs> like, yeah, not I mean, again. It's like, oh, well, of course, right. But I think that um, it seemed like there there was a period of time, like when Lula first went to jail, where it was, in a way, it was kind of quiet. Like, after he got in prison, I mean, there was you know, huge demonstrations, and it was a global news event. And then it seemed like there was a little bit of time where, you know, particularly me, you know, someone following it really closely, it was kind of like, huh, like, there isn't really that. You know, obviously there's some demonstrations, and there was a, there was some mass protests that actually, like, was some type of, like, greatest show of unity of left factions, I think, since the 80s, in terms of, like, all the unions were together, the landless movement. Um, but it seemed kind of quiet. And then I, I actually think that thing a couple of months ago that I alluded to before was very um, big in terms of just when when that regional court judge said, actually, yes, like this petition's valid. Because it's also very unusual to imprison somebody in Brazil, apparently, before all of their appeals have been exhausted. I mean, it, Every single thing about this process has been extremely odd, to say the least. And obviously, 
uh, Judge Morrow, who, you know, his wife is, is a, I believe, you know, connected to oil companies, and he comes from a very white, very upper-class part of Brazil. Um, there's a lot of, as I say, very weird, uh, very white, rightward and very white uh, and class politics to the hatred and mania to get Lula by Judge Morrow and others. But I think that... Um, the way he, when Judge Morrow refused to cooperate with that order, which, as I say, there was a couple hours there where the holding of Lula in jail was literally illegal. So that they kind of had a moment where they flipped from, you know, as I say, I think even, you know, any, anybody assessing the situation would say this might technically be illegal, but this is obviously corrupted and unjust and, and, and clearly targeted at Lula. But they had that moment and that, where it was like, okay, well, now what you're doing is just illegal, right. right? Like, now you're refusing a court order to release, you know, I mean, it's illegal with anybody, but, you know, one of the most important figures in Brazilian history, right. and you're just refusing. And so, um, and, and it seemed like over the summer there was a lot of, there was actually one part of the process where before it was overturned, Lula was allowed to register as a candidate. In Brazil, I think among a certain part of the neoliberal Brazilian elite, there actually was a lot of embarrassment at things like the New York Times editorial and the United Nations uh, and respected regional politicians and respected European politicians and even like you know, a letter where, you know, I don't know, something like 28 or 30 progressives in the United States, you know, sure, I, I covered it on my shows, and, you know, uh, people who care about these things were aware of it, but that's actually a big deal in Brazil, right? Like, that actually, you know, it's not, I mean, not, not, it's not like earth-shattering, but it's something that they could say, hey, you know, a prominent U.S. presidential candidate is saying this, is, this doesn't look right, right? Like, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, so I think the momentum has gone in the right direction, and I think the way they've played it by pushing it to the absolute maximum and really making the Brazilian Supreme Court and the Brazilian judicial system be clearly out of step with the United Nations Human Rights Commission, out of step with all of this international opinion, and having just constant polling that, like, you know, yeah, Lula is crushing it. He is clearly the voice of the choice of the electorate. You're not going to let him do it, has really done that. And then, of course, at the same time, you put out this guy, Hadaji, who, yes, I mean, he doesn't have Lula's uh, political skills, but, I mean, I, you know, Lula really is like, you know, nobody does, right? Like, I mean, Lula is in that top, top, top echelon of just sort of raw political talent. So it's not like, okay... Hadaji doesn't have it, and, you know, one of these fucking middle-aged Brazilian lawyers has it, right? Like, <laughs> you know, no, right? I mean, it's, it's Lula and then a huge drop-down to everybody else. But I do think that Hadaji is actually, you know, he's, he's, he, you know he looks the part. Uh, and it's not like, it's not like, a, it's not like you're, you're putting your, trusting your political future to a guy who has, like, no charisma and no ability to sort of get out there and operate. I think he does. And it seems to me that if they, I mean, this stabbing is a big complication, but if they let the election actually happen, 
I actually think he'll win. I do. Okay. Well, uh, I think yeah. we should yeah. leave it there because that's kind of. I don't usually end these episodes on a positive note, but that seems like a positive note. So, uh, for a change, let's <laughs> let's stop there. Uh, <laughs> Michael Brooks, uh, thank you so much for being on and uh, for explaining all of this stuff to us. Uh, it's been it's been great. Thanks. Oh, yeah, it was my pleasure, man. I look forward to uh, many more conversations with you. Thanks, man. Okay, uh, because I'm a blockhead, uh, I, I didn't <laughs> put in a last uh, plug for the Michael Brooks show there, uh, which I should have done while he was still on the phone. Uh, but don't let that stop you. Uh, please go check out the Michael Brooks show. Uh, go check out his Patreon. I'll put the link in, uh, in the show description. I'll put the link to uh, his show's uh, website in the show description. And uh, you know, definitely check that stuff out. Uh, thanks again to Michael Brooks and thank you guys for listening Uh, we'll be back uh, later this week for our second episode until then, uh, as always take care and I will uh, talk to you soon bye bye